Hi, it's Holly, and we are together again at the second location. Before we dive into part three of our discussion about the Florida furniture store murders and the unjust conviction of Tommy Ziegler, I want to announce that Tommy finally has had a win. After consistently being denied for the last couple of decades, Tommy Ziegler's request to do advanced DNA testing on the evidence, all at the expense of Tommy's defense team, has been granted. Someday soon, we will all know if Tommy has been telling the truth for the last 46 years. And we will know whether an innocent man has been on death row for decades. Tommy has followed the science of DNA and its courtroom application since it was first introduced and used to secure the convictions of the accused. I think Tommy might have been one of the first people to realize that if DNA could convict a man, it could prove his innocence too. Tommy was allowed to do some limited DNA testing in 2001, and their results were entirely inconsistent with the state's theory of the case. Just briefly, because we will talk about this later, but the results showed that Charlie Mays had Perry Edwards' blood all over his pant legs and shoes, and the blood on Tommy was not Perry's, as the state had argued. Remember, the state's theory of the case is that Tommy held Perry, his father-in-law, in a headlock as he beat him with a heavy metal crank, but it was Charlie Mays' blood on Tommy's shirt, which is consistent with what Tommy's saying, that he was attacked when he entered the store, and he fought with maybe two or three men in the back room. Even though the testing proved that the state's theory of the crime was complete bullshit, and the results supported what Tommy had been saying for 25 years, and heavily implicated Charlie Mays in the murder of Perry Edwards, because the results did not show Tommy's actual innocence, it didn't get him a new trial. Ever since then, as DNA advanced, Tommy always fought for more testing, and the state, often represented by Jeff Ashton of Casey Anthony Infamy, you know, the guy that lost an unlosable case, well, the state has successfully successfully fought the testing. So this is one time when Jeff Ashton, you know, gets some wins under his belt. It's just, you know, it's the wrong thing to do. But the tide is hopefully finally turning in Tommy's favor, and DNA will help clear him. But, okay, so let's recap what we've already talked about in the previous episodes. But of course, you should really listen to the first two episodes about this murder, as this case is so confusing that I actually confuse myself with it sometimes. And I'm doing a podcast on it. So it's Christmas Eve, 1975, and four dead bodies are found in a Florida furniture store. Eunice Ziegler, the wife of the store owner, and her parents, Virginia and Perry Edwards, and a store customer, Charlie Mays, are all dead in the store when authorities arrive in response to the store owner, Tommy Ziegler's call for help. Tommy is losing consciousness when the police arrive, as he has been beaten and shot in the abdomen. Tommy survived surgery, but he is arrested and charged with a quadruple homicide when inept detective Don Fry arrives on the scene and quite quickly misinterprets nearly all of the evidence. Two men come forward in the hours after the murders to implicate Tommy and perhaps to deflect attention from their own relationship to the crime. First, there is Edward, Edward Williams, who accused Tommy of trying to lure him into the back of the store and attempting to kill him with a jammed gun. Keep in mind, according to the state's timeline of events, while Tommy was begging Edward Williams to enter the back of the dark store, there were already four dead people inside, including Charlie Mays, who, according to the state, Tommy was setting up to look like the killer. And according to the state, Tommy had killed all of them, shooting his wife and mother-in-law dead, and then he had a violent encounter with his father-in-law, shooting and beating the older man, 
And then after killing him, Tommy shot and beat to death Charlie Mays, all according to the state's theory. So as Tommy's trying to lure Edward Williams into the back of that store to try and kill him and set him up for the murder, he already has a man, according to the state, that he's murdered and set up to frame him looking like he was doing a robbery slash murder. Why he needs to lure Edward Williams in there to frame a second man is beyond me, and it doesn't make any sense. And I think it's important to point out because the state's theory is ridiculous. And the story that Tommy tells sounds like the truth. Now, the second, I already told you about um, the first witness that came forward in the last episode. That was Edward Williams. Now, the second witness that comes forward to implicate Tommy in the murders in the early morning hours of Christmas Day is Felton Thomas, an itinerant fruit picker who occasionally worked with Charlie Mays. This is the story that Felton Thomas tells the investigators. First, Thomas said that he had never seen Tommy before that night. Tommy would later say that he had never seen Felton Thomas before he saw him testifying against him. Thomas claimed that he was hanging around a barrel fire on Christmas Eve when Charlie Mays pulled up and asked him to come take a ride with him. I want to point out that I actually didn't realize that people hung around barrel fires in the 1970s. I thought that was like a depression era thing or just a thing in movies. But Felton Thomas said he was hanging at a barrel fire and he goes, he go, agrees to go with Charlie and hops in. Charlie and Thomas drive to the rear parking lot behind the Ziegler Furniture Store. And Thomas lays out to the police the path that they took. Mays parked not in the Ziegler parking lot. Remember that he parked on the other side of a chain link fence that was a barrier between the Ziegler store and the Winter Garden Inn. The view of Mays truck was blocked by a trailer and cars out on the main road would not be able to easily see Mays truck where it was parked. Felton Thomas noted that the store was completely dark. He said it was completely dark, which is weird because Tommy and Curtis Dunaway had left on a large lit wreath and several lamps inside the store. While the showroom window lights had been turned out, there were still lights on the store, according to everybody, when that store closed. Even though the overhead showroom lights were out, those lamps would illuminate the store to a certain degree. And I just have to say it again because it's worth repeating Charlie Mays, according to the state's theory, goes to pick up a 200-pound TV and he parks in a neighboring parking lot on the wrong side of a six-foot-tall chain-link fence. It makes absolutely no sense. How the hell does Mays plan to load this supposed TV that he is picking up? But it is important to note that it would be hard for people to see Mays' van where he parked it. I think not being seen is much more important to Charlie than easy access to the store. While they are sitting in the van in the back lot at the Winter Garden Inn, Thomas claims that a man pulled up in a Cadillac and the man greeted Charlie Mays and asked the guys to come for a ride with him. And they, they wanted, he wants him, he has some new guns and he wants these guys to help him test them out. They drove south of the town to an orange grove. The, men ex the man explained that he had just purchased three guns and he wanted Charlie and Thomas to test the guns out for him. Thomas said that Charlie told him that this white man was Ziegler's, that he owned the store. The three guns were in a paper bag on the floor and according to Thomas, Charlie picked up one up and fired it three or four times from the seat of the car. This whole trip to the Orange Grove is suspect. They didn't get out of the car or have a target and it was dark. How the hell are they testing the accuracy of the guns? I mean, just seeing if they fire? Because they couldn't be telling if they're hitting anything. 
I mean, they don't have targets and it's dark out. So that's just silly. According to Thomas, Tommy didn't have the key to the store and Tommy claimed that someone was coming to drop the key off. So it was like a kill time to we get the key and can get into the store kind of thing. But also it just makes no sense. Why would Tommy show up without a key? And who the hell would be dropping off a key? It's just weird. According to the investigators, this was all a ruse concocted by Tommy to get gunpowder residue on Mays and Thomas's hands and their prints on the guns, which is stupid because when the guns are found at the crime scene, the prints have been completely wiped off. If Tommy was going to do this to get their prints on the weapons, why would he then wipe them clean? If he was some criminal genius that had a plan to plant forensic evidence, why wipe off the prints from the guns? The theories proposed by the state just don't hold water. And it's as if they contort themselves to make the statements made by Williams and Thomas make sense instead of just listening to what Tommy says, who offers the only logical story about what happened that night. I question whether the trip to the Orange Grove actually happened, but the police never did. Anyway, back to Thomas's account of the night. After Charlie shot a gun from the car, Thomas picked up a gun, but Tommy told him to change guns and shoot a different gun. So Thomas switched guns. Thomas fired one shot. According to Thomas, Tommy never fired any of the guns. And after those four or five shots were fired, they all drove back to the furniture store. After shooting the guns at the Orange Grove, keep in mind, Tommy never shot a gun. Thomas allegedly only fired one single shot and Charlie fired a few shots from a single gun out into the darkness. None of the three men ever exited the car at the Orange Grove. They all, and they, they all sat there and shot some guns and they all drove back to the furniture store to wait for someone to show up with that darn key. They pull into the front parking lot and Tommy tells Thomas to pull the lever on the main breaker outside the store, thus turning off all electricity in the store. And Thomas agrees and goes off and turns off the power. Thomas describes Tommy as driving his car all the way back to the back lot and parking in the Winter Garden Inn beside Charlie May's van. Tommy still doesn't have a key to the store. So according to Thomas, Tommy takes a pipe and shatters a window in the store to gain access to the inside. Thomas said this weirded him Charlie out and Charlie said something about not wanting a TV like this. And then Charlie jumps the fence and goes towards his van. Tommy yells to Charlie that he thinks he has a spare key back at the house. So the three guys agreed to go to Tommy's house. They all pile into Curtis Dunaway's Oldsmobile and they drive together to the Ziegler home to get this key. Even though Thomas claims that Tommy had already broken a window with a pipe at the store. So they already had access to the store. They didn't really need a key at this point, but they all drive to Tommy's house together in Curtis's car to get this completely unneeded key. When Thomas described the stop to Tommy's house to get the key, he described seeing a truck and a car parked in the Ziegler's driveway. Now, Tommy's truck should be parked in the driveway, and theoretically, Edward Williams could be there waiting for Tommy. So that would be two trucks, not a truck and a car. We have no idea whose car this would be parked in Tommy's driveway. But there is something wrong with Thomas's story at this point, because it's very important to note there should be no car there. Thomas does not say that Tommy spoke to anyone in the truck, even though according to Edward Williams, Thomas spoke to him and said for Williams to wait, Tommy will be back in 10 minutes. So right there, there are two inconsistency in Thomas's account. The failure that the Thomas is felt Thomas is saying is there's a car and a truck when really at the most, there should be two trucks. And also 
Tommy, according to Edward Williams, Tommy stopped and spoke to him. But according to Felton Thomas, there, he did not stop and speak to anybody in a truck. But these inconsistencies in these stories matter not at all to the police. But when I think about that, even that 10 minute timeline that Williams said Tommy would be back in, you know, just wait 10 more minutes, I'll be right back. Even that makes no sense. It takes approximately five to 10 minutes to travel from Tommy's house to the store. So there is no way for Tommy to go to the store, kill these two guys to frame them for the murders he already committed and drive back and meet Williams in 10 minutes. Why would Tommy say he'd be back in 10 minutes if he knew it wasn't possible? He is running the risk that Williams is going to be pissed about the long wait and about being lied to about, about it being just another 10 minutes more. And Williams could just get up and leave. And Tommy would be out of guide to frame. And he'd be leaving a witness that could tie him to both Charlie Mays and Felton Thomas, men he planned on killing in just a few minutes. So according to Thomas, Tommy goes to his home and he gets the keys and a box of bullets and Tommy told Charlie Mays to load one of the guns. They drive back to the store. When they are back at the furniture store, they parked out front. Mays wanted to bring his van around to the front, but Tommy said no, they would bring the TV to the front door first. Mays said Tommy went to the front door and Tommy turned and urged Thomas to come along saying, come on, Tom, we need your help. Come on, Tom. Thomas claims that he is frightened of the dark store and he told Tommy to quote, cut on some light and he would go in, which makes no sense. But Thomas knows that he himself cut the power from outside. So how the hell is Tommy going to quote, cut on some light? Thomas then says that Tommy told him if he's not coming in the store, then he should wait in the car. Well, Thomas doesn't follow this advice and he decides to leave while Tommy and Charlie are in the store and Thomas walked across the street to the mall and got a ride home to Oakland. So right now, listen to this. We are supposed to believe that Tommy Ziegler had just let a witness to all that nuttiness leave the scene. Thomas saw the whole scene at the Orange Grove, supposedly, and then he allegedly saw Tommy walk Charlie into the store to be murdered that night and Tommy just let this witness walk away. According to the state, once inside the store, Tommy attacks and kills Charlie, shooting him twice and ultimately beating Charlie to death with a heavy metal crank. Thomas saw Charlie go into the store with Tommy to be murdered. Tommy can't, he cannot let Thomas leave the scene. It just makes no sense. But according to the state, Tommy just lets this man leave. Lead investigator Don Fry completely believed the shit that Felton Thomas was slinging. Felton Thomas was seen by Samuel Harris uh, and his two children between 7 and 8.30 while they were out shopping at the mall across from the Ziegler Furniture Store. Harrison knew Thomas as an itinerant um, farm worker who picked oranges seasonally in the groves. Thomas asked Harrison for a ride back to Oakland. Harrison agreed to give Thomas a lift. According to Harris, Thomas was quiet during the whole trip until he mentioned near the end of his ride that he had just seen Charlie Mays. And Thomas said that something was wrong with the the Ziegler Furniture Store. Okay, and this is one of the things that really bugs me. I really wish that that time frame um, when the Harrisons encountered Thomas was a little bit tighter. I couldn't find anywhere a statement by Thomas about the time he left the furniture store, but between 7 and 8.30 is a big window of time. I mean, we know that the Zigglers were still at home till a little after 7, and that Eunice and her parents were most likely killed at the store at 7.24ish. Tommy himself calls for help at 9.18, and Edward Williams most likely shows up at the KFC at 9.20ish. But just to me, at that 7 to 8.30, oh, it's too, uh, oh, I wish we could pin that down more. And maybe that information is somewhere. I just couldn't find it. Okay, 
So right now I'm going to go outside of the normal timeline that we've been keeping here too. And I realized I might've been doing this the wrong way by trying to go by a timeline, but I'm going to tell you Tommy's version of the events that Christmas Eve. I've told you what Edward Williams version of the events were. I've told you what Felton Thomas's version of the events were. Now I'm going to tell you what Tommy says happened. And I want you to keep in mind that Tommy only communicates this to the investigators on December 27th after the police had already spoken to both Williams and Thomas and had already decided that Tommy was guilty. The police had tried to talk to Tommy earlier on the 26th, but his lawyers had waved them off as Tommy was drugged and recovering from surgery. But the next day, Tommy's story was conveyed to the police by his lawyer. And now let me just tell you, Tommy's version actually makes sense. And Tommy tells the exact same story from the, that day on the 27th of December, 1975, till now. Tommy's story has never changed. For 46 years, Tommy's account of that night of the murders has never wavered. And that really means something to me. There will be cracks that appear in a recounted lie, but the truth is easier to remember because it actually happened. And it stands the test of time and repeated retellings of the same night. I believe Tommy. And this is his story. According to Tommy, Eunice and her parents go to the store together in the Edwards green car, while Tommy waited at home for Edward Williams. Tommy expects Williams to arrive at 7, while Williams said that he was supposed to meet Tommy at 7.30. So it's after 7, and Williams isn't there yet, so Tommy decides that he should get a bottle of bourbon for the party later that night. But part way to the liquor store, he changes his mind and returns home, as he realizes it's getting too late, and he's running out of time. Williams should be there soon, Tommy thinks. So Tommy decides that he will just have Williams stop on the way to the furniture store at a liquor store, as they well, he thinks that will take less time than driving to the liquor store separately. I don't know where the liquor stores are located, but the way Tommy is thinking makes me think there might be a liquor store between Tommy's house and the furniture store, or maybe near one of the places they're making a delivery to is near a liquor store, so it would be more on the way and not a separate trip. That decision to turn around and not go to the liquor store is fatal. If only Tommy had continued on to the liquor store, he would have had an alibi for the time when his wife and in-laws were being murdered. According to Tommy, when he returns from his halfway trip to the liquor store, Williams is waiting for him in, in the driveway. Tommy hops in Williams' truck and they drive to the furniture store together. Tommy entered the back of the store first and Williams was a bit behind him. And according to Tommy, upon entering the store, he was immediately assaulted by at least two men in complete darkness. And in the struggle, Tommy loses his glasses. And without his glasses, Tommy is legally blind. And there are no lights on in the store. Tommy can hardly see. So Tommy pulls out his 22 from his belt and he thinks he may have fired one round before the gun jams. Then Tommy throws the gun at his assailants. The attackers are still on top of him, but Tommy manages to get to a desk drawer and finds a 357 Colt. Tommy fired some shots before Tommy was shot himself in the side of his abdomen and Tommy loses consciousness. When Tommy comes to, his attackers are gone, and he crawls on the floor to his desk where he gets a spare pair of glasses. And Tommy eventually gets to the phone at the customer service desk, and he calls for help. Tommy manages to get to the front of the store, and he collapses on an outdoorish style lounge chair. It's still inside the store. Tommy finds the keys that he had given Eunice still in the lock of the front door, and that is how he, that's how he opened the door for... Um, Chief Thompson 
and Chief Figgy when they arrived. Okay. In my opinion, Tommy's account makes a hell of a lot more sense than the bit about the orange grove and Tommy getting on his knees to beg Edward William to beg Edward Williams to go into the store, but it was too late. Donald Fry had already made up his mind that Tommy was guilty. So we have the statements of both witnesses, Edward Williams and Thomas Felton, and Tommy's statement as well. So let's do a little review. By the time Donald Fry hears what Tommy has to say, he has already made up his mind that Tommy is guilty, and he accepts the statement of Williams, Williams and Thomas without questioning them. Here is the state's theory of how the events unfolded. First, Tommy drove Eunice to the store and killed her. Then her parents arrived at the store separately, and Tommy killed them. Tommy then leaves the store and comes back and meets Charlie Mays and Felton Thomas at the store. Then they go to the Orange Grove, shoot some guns, and then they go back to the store where they cut the power at the main source and break a window before deciding to go to Tommy's house to get a key to get into the locked store. The three men then return to the store, and while Thomas flees, Charlie enters the store with Tommy, who murders him. Tommy then goes back home, meets Edward Williams, who is waiting for Tommy for over an hour in his driveway, and they go to the store together in Williams' truck. Once there, at the store, Tommy tries to shoot Williams, but Williams also flees the scene. Tommy goes back into the store and calls for help. And then, this is according to the state, Tommy calls for help and then shoots himself in the abdomen while waiting for the police to arrive, thus assuring his own survival. That's what the state decided happened that night, all in a two-hour time frame, we'll say. But those who think that Tommy is innocent have proposed a different series of events, starting with Eunice and her parents going to the store together to pick out a chair a little after 7, and at 7.24, they are attacked in the store by robbers, and all three are killed. In this version of the night, Tommy never planned to meet Charlie Mays. Instead, he was going to make deliveries with Edward Williams, then go to the party later with Eunice. While the murders were taking place, Tommy was waiting to meet up with Edward Williams at his house, but Williams is late. But the two do meet up and go to the store together. Tommy enters the back of the store alone. I think Williams knew Tommy was going to be ambushed and attacked. So Williams hangs back and Tommy's attacked and shot. Tommy may have shot one of his attackers. Tommy struggles with his attackers and is shot in the abdomen by a 38 and Tommy loses consciousness. Charlie Mays is then beaten to death by the other killers because he has been shot. And injured. Tommy later wakes up and finds some glasses so he can see again and gets to the phone and calls for help. Now you decide which version seems more reasonable. To me, I can't understand why a guy would try to set up three men for murdering his family and let two of the men escape and go to the police. Now the question that we'll, we'll get to later is, was this an attempted robbery gone wrong or was it a planned hit on Tommy? that Eunice and her parents tragically walked into. But like I said, that's a question for later. Just like we analyzed Edward Williams' statement to the police, let's do what the police never did and go over the inconsistencies in Felton Thomas's story about the night of the murders. He cites that when they went to Tommy's house, that a truck and a car were in the Ziegler driveway. But it was actually two trucks. Edward Williams' truck, according to Edward Williams, should be there, and also Tommy's truck. Also, Felton Thomas claimed that Tommy was driving a Cadillac when he was actually driving an Oldsmobile, borrowed from his employee, Curtis Dunaway. The car Tommy actually owned 
the um, Toronado did look like a Cadillac in a way, but Tommy wasn't driving his car that night. It's almost like Thomas might be describing the car that everyone had assumed that Tommy would normally be driving that evening. I think it is entirely possible that Thomas is just describing the car that he had been told that Tommy drove. No one had any idea that Tommy wouldn't have that car that night. And when police get Thomas's statement, I don't know if they were aware of the car trade that night at that point. But Fry dismissed these differences. He just blindly believed Thomas, just like he did with Williams. Now here's a major problem with the investigation. Major. Felton Thomas never submitted the clothing or shoes he was wearing on the night of the murders for testing. Any testing. Listen to that again. Felton Thomas, a man who by his own admission was at the Ziegler Furniture Store on the night of the murders of four people, was never, never asked to turn over to the police the clothing or shoes that he wore that night. There was no comparison of Felton Thomas's shoe footprints to footprints at the scene. He was also never tested for gunshot residue, which would bolster his bullshit story about going to the Orange Grove with Tommy that night. Okay, and also, get this shit. The police brought Felton Thomas into the furniture store to question him. Yeah, yes, listen to that. He was taken into the crime scene for questioning. Why? Just why? Because the police were a bunch of guppies just mindlessly eating the crumbs thrown to them by Thomas and Williams, no matter how ridiculous and without question. Not only were they gullible, but they didn't even know how to preserve a crime scene. Thomas should never have been taken into the crime scene. If that was, if there was anything physically tying Felton Thomas to the inside of that store, a fingerprint, a shoe print, a fiber, a spot of blood, it would show that Thomas lied about having never been in that store. But the police didn't collect his shoes, so shoe prints were lost. His clothes were never collected, so fiber analysis was lost. And any fingerprint or DNA evidence of Thomas at the crime scene is now compromised because now he has been in the store at the request of the police. And that could explain away any of the prints of Felton Thomas's found in the store that he claimed that he was never in. There was absolutely no reason that Felton Thomas was taken into that store. It shows utter incompetence. And if you're incompetent in this, if you screw something like this up, it's so basic. What else have you done wrong? It, it's like a lie. Once you know a person tells a lie, they're a liar to you. Once I know that you can't do the basics of your job and I become aware of that, I call into question all of your work. Felton Thomas claimed he had never been in that store. But of course, they weren't going to check that claim against his fingerprints and shoe prints. But at the very least, keep the witnesses out of the crime scene. This isn't a damn block party. We don't need the whole town in there. Thomas's story also went under some minor changes as he recounted the night multiple times. In his first account to the police, Thomas said that the man he told he was told was Ziegler's. That's the quote. He he stated that someone you know. Ziegler's, he says the name is a plural. I don't quite understand that. Maybe it's regional. I don't know. But the man he was told was Ziegler's stated that someone else was coming from Apopka, a neighboring town, to join them and that this person had the key to the store. This reference to someone coming from Apopka never appeared in Thomas's subsequent retellings of this story. Also, it doesn't really make any sense. 
I just keep wondering, did Thomas actually meet some white guy that night that Mays told him was Tommy? That was Ziegler's. Thomas had never met Tommy before, so he wouldn't know if it was really Tommy or not. Thomas could be telling the truth. But the problem is that he was lied to. So his truth isn't necessarily the truth. But it gets even worse. Remember that Felton Thomas claims that he had never seen Tommy before Christmas Eve? And it's funny because he refuses, he refers to Tommy as Ziegler's, possessive or plural. I'm not really sure there. But Tommy claims that, you know, Felton Thomas says he never met him before Christmas Eve. Well, Tommy claims he never met or saw Felton Thomas before the preliminary hearing. But at no time was Felton Thomas ever asked to describe the man that he met that night at the furniture store. Never asked to describe him. He just pointed at Tommy in the court. Well, he was, Tommy was clearly the defendant, so that doesn't mean that much. He never, Felton never picked Tommy out of a lineup. There was never a photographic lineup done. He never described him. When he said he was with Ziegler, the police took it as a fact that he was with Tommy that night, as if Felton was a man that was beyond questioning. No one is beyond questioning. You question everything Tommy said, but you question nothing that Edward Williams or Felton Thomas says. It's it's so bizarre to me that the police just accepted everything that Edward Williams and Felton Thomas told them as fact, without questioning or evaluating their statements at all. And Thomas's testimony at the trial included this odd statement that Ziegler had said, quote, that guy that owned the store hadn't got back yet. What the hell? Was Thomas lied to that night? But he just thinks all white men look alike, so he couldn't spot the difference? <laughs> Kidding. More likely he was lied to, but he was afraid. Maybe he did recognize the guy that he thought was Ziegler in the courtroom somewhere, you know, but it wasn't Tommy. Or was he afraid to not go along with the story that the police so clearly wanted to believe that Tommy was the murderer? But it does not make sense for Ziegler to be saying that night at the furniture store that the guy that owned the store hadn't got back yet. And who was this guy from Opopka? These are things that they, they call into question the story the man is telling because it doesn't, it's not logical. Now so. One of the more noteworthy parts of uh, Felton Thomas's deposition is his account of how he and Charlie Mays drove to the Winter Garden Inn parking lot. The path that Felton Thomas says they took had them driving through a two-foot-high cement block wall that separated the motel and the neighboring building. I don't think he's familiar with this area. Or maybe he is and he just got it wrong. But it's weird, the path he shows that he drove with Charlie Mays is not possible. But the weirdest statement from Felton Thomas is hands down his response to a question about why he left Curtis Dunaway's car and went to a nearby shopping complex where he hitched a ride home to Oakland. This is a quote from Felton Thomas about why he left the scene. And it is, quote, because he had been acting a little strange. I ain't paying too much attention because he was on the truck when everybody trying to get their equipment sharpened there. I don't think anyone knows what the hell Felton Thomas was talking about right there, but Tommy's lawyers did not press the question. I think that's the biggest, one of the biggest mistakes of the case. He was talking about something that didn't make sense, but maybe it does make sense if we would follow it up with that a little bit more. Maybe there was a white man that Felton Thomas had encountered 
Maybe it just wasn't Tommy. Maybe this started before. Maybe this was a something that started before that was a you know, a, a predetermined event that was going to be an attack on Tommy. And this is where the arrangements were being made. Because never at a point was there a time where Tommy was on a truck sharpening people's tools. I just cannot believe that question was dropped. I think Tommy had, I think he had good representation, but I just can't understand why there's no follow-up to that. I mean... That's going to bother me forever. I want to know what the hell that man was talking about. Phil and Thomas also explained how he returned to the furniture store and was in the crowd of onlookers watching the police um, as they, the investigation unfolded. And then he left and drove to Orlando with a family member. When they ran out of gas, they went into a diner and Felton Thomas saw a police officer and he started telling his story to the officer. At no point did Felton Thomas ever approach any of the officers at the crime scene. The crime scene, the ones who are actually investigating the crime, to tell them what he had seen that night. Instead, he tries to go to Orlando, runs out of gas, and starts telling a police officer there that has no connection to this crime. Odd. Why would he do this? Who the hell knows? It doesn't make any sense. He actually stood outside of the store where police investigated and didn't say a thing. And don't forget about Ed Nolan the elderly KFC-loving man who said that he saw the man that had asked to use the phone at the KFC to call the police, that would be Edward Williams, standing in the crowd outside the furniture store, but he was wearing different clothes that he had on at the KFC that night. Thomas admits to being in the crowd, and while Edward Williams denies it, he was spotted in the crowd by one eyewitness. On Christmas morning, Detective Fry and Police Chief Fickey are at the hospital. They want to question Tommy, but his nurse says that he can't have visitors. Tommy just had surgery, but I don't think Detective Fry gives a shit, and Figgy doesn't seem to have any common sense. The two investigators write out a waiver for Tommy to sign, allowing them to search his house. The nurse reads the waiver to Tommy, and after he receives a dose of morphine, yes, after he receives a dose of morphine, Tommy signs and consents to the search of his house. Later, Tommy will not remember signing this consent to search waiver. I think this is going to be an issue, a trial, and not an appeal, but we'll see. Fry had already decided that he could search the entire store, including records and files, because it was a crime scene. The police at this point had never applied for any search warrants. This is Christmas Day. Not for the store, or for any of the vehicles, or for Tommy's home. The first search warrant that was granted was for Tommy and Eunice's home, and that was based on the waiver that Tommy had signed. But keep in mind, they've already searched Tommy's house once, and that was before the waiver was signed. The search of the store without a warrant, they searched the store without a warrant, and got a shaky waiver to allow the search of Tommy's house the morning after the murders, while he is recovering from surgery. But you gotta remember, just like I just said, the store had already been searched, the house had already been searched once. Tommy's house was searched before he signed the waiver of his rights. Remember that asinine theory that Eunice and her parents were being held hostage inside the Ziegler home and the police had to go in there and search the house? Even, even the attic had to be searched. Turnus, Curtis Dunway's car was searched in the garage where they found a thirty-eight on the back floor of the car and it was bagged as evidence. This was before anyone realized that it was Eunice and her parents dead in the store and they are taking items from Tommy's home and bagging them as evidence. How is he considered a suspect 
at this point. I guess maybe everyone's a suspect at this point. But why would a gun in a car in his home be something they bag as evidence? I mean, they don't get Felton Thomas's clothes, for gosh sakes. But they'll take a gun from this guy's house. It's bizarre. From Tommy's bedside, Fry goes straight to Tommy's house, and a search ensues. The evidence collected included a Holiday Inn towel in the master bedroom that had some red stains. Oh, let me take a step back. Maybe Tommy is guilty. I mean, he stole a, ho he stole a hotel towel. But I think the red stains were animal blood, which makes sense. Eunice took a cat to the vet that day to treat an absence. But those red blood stains, they turned out to be nothing related to the crime at all. They also collected some thirty-eight cartridges from a nightstand. There was a damp hand towel in the garage. Remember that Edward Williams had said that Tommy used a towel to wipe down Curtis Dunaway's car before Tommy left with Williams to go to the furniture store. But this is also where they have their cat kennels. So I could see a damp towel being there just for cleanup. They also searched Curtis Dunaway's car, a car that was not owned by Tommy and was not at the crime scene. They had no search warrant to search this car. I think that unless Curtis himself gave permission for the search, that this was not a lawful search. That's just my opinion. I think that the waiver of his rights about searching his home that Tommy signed would not extend to the cars at the home that did not belong to Tommy. The car is not Tommy's. He can't waive rights about it being searched. Plain and simple. It's not his car. But I don't think his, this reach was ever specifically challenged by um, Tommy's lawyers, and it's too late to raise it now if it wasn't raised before and maybe i'm wrong maybe the fact that the car was on loan to him uh by the owner's permission maybe that does give him the right to agree to a search i i personally do not think it does but i have not researched that topic heavily so i wouldn't commit either way i'm just saying that's just meh if i had to go just as a guess i'm saying no perhaps it had been included in the application for the search warrant for tommy's house but even then i still think it's curtis dunaway that needs to consent to a search of his oldsmobile but you know that's for, you know, people that are more search scholars than I am. In the Dunaway car, tissue with a red substance on it is recovered, and Fry found smears that he believed were blood on the driver's headrest, on the inside of the driver's side door handle. Curtis told detectives that the blood was not there before he traded cars with Tommy. The sheriff's office obtained Tommy's clothes from his family, which is weird because Officer Thompson Chief Thompson had called the, uh, the hospital to have them hold it, but it was still released to, the clothes were still released to Tommy's family. But anyway, Tommy's family gladly give, give them over. And Fry did some, okay, Detective Fry, always thinking he's a forensics guy when he's not. He does some amateur forensic work. Fry holds up um, some of the bloody footprints with Tommy's shoes, which had a rib pattern on the shoes. And he's like, mm, Fry thinks he's got a match. Also, Fry's not qualified to do this in any way. It's the FBI's job. Leave it to them. Or whoever's your forensic team, leave it to them. Leave it to the experts. But I think Detective Fry is somebody that thinks he's an expert on everything. When Edward Williams' truck was processed, no prints were found. The investigators believed that Tommy had wiped the truck clean of prints before he shot himself. But Tommy had told Curtis Dunaway that he was going to make some last-minute holiday deliveries that night with Williams. There was no need for Tommy to wipe his prints from William's truck. He had told people that he would be with Williams that evening. So that, that he has a reason for his prints being in the vehicle. Tommy has no reason to want to remove those prints. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So who wiped down William's truck? 
Was it Williams himself that wiped down the truck in the 40 minutes between, he, between when he claims Tommy tried to kill him and he showed up at the KFC, you know, to try to unsuccess, unsuccessfully call the police? Williams had to be doing something during that time. Tommy had no reason to wipe down Williams' truck. He had told people that he was going to the store that night to make deliveries with Williams. But I could see a panicked Williams completely losing his shit when the truck would not start because of the bad carburetor. And he just tries to wipe Tommy's prints off his own truck, perhaps not realizing that Tommy's not dead and that Tommy had told people that he was spending time with Williams at the store that night. But Williams would be panicking, maybe acting before he formulates a plan. He just wants to get the hell away from that store full of dead bodies with his truck stalled out in the parking lot. And I think we have to use that as a frame. I think that truck not starting made all the plans for that evening and how this scene was supposed to look. Everything changed when that truck wouldn't start. Now, the autopsies, they revealed that both Virginia and Eunice died from gunshot wounds. Perry Edwards also died from a gunshot wound, but he had sustained a, a severe beating. The 72-year-old man had really fought his attacker. Charlie Mays was shot twice in the back and once in the gut, but he actually died from being beaten to death. Uh, Mays had massive head injuries, presumably from the heavy linoleum crank that was found you know, by his body. The beating Mays sustained was much more gruesome than the fight Perry had been in, even, even though Perry had been in a, a very vicious fight. May's brain had been damaged, and the fractures were substantial. Charlie was also missing a tooth. Okay, so that's what happens in the autopsy. We have the women both dead by gunshots. Perry Edwards also dead by gunshot, but beaten. And Charlie Mays shot, but beaten to death. Back at the hospital, the chief of physical therapy, um, Dr. Richard Smith, he's a friend of Tommy's. They were in the same Army Reserve unit. He goes to Tommy's hospital room and asks Tommy if he knew what had happened that night. Tommy says, I went down there with Edward. Tommy said he couldn't turn on the lights when he tried a different switch. Tommy says he was hit from behind. Tommy stopped talking and drifted away. Richard quietly tells Tommy that Eunice is dead. Tommy closed his eyes and cried quietly. Tommy's world was shattered. But it wasn't over yet. Things were going to get a lot worse for Tommy. And this is where I'm going to leave you this week. It's early Christmas morning, 1975. The evening before, four bodies were found in the Ziegler Furniture Store. And inside is the store's owner, Tommy. He is alive, but he's been shot by a 38 in the lower abdomen. Tommy has surgery that night and survives the attack. But as Tommy lies in a hospital bed recovering from his wounds, the police at the crime scene are piecing together the evidence, which one relatively inexperienced sheriff's officer, fresh off a one-week course of blood splatter analysis, you know, conducted it in a basement. This course was conducted in a basement. And he feels he knows exactly what happened in the store that Christmas Eve. That Tommy Ziegler killed first his wife, then his in-laws. And then he murdered a store customer, Charlie Mays, in an attempt to make the murders look like a robbery gone wrong. Armed with the witness statements of two men who claim that Tommy tried to lure them into the store that night, the state prepares to charge Tommy with quadruple murder.